Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thanks, Vanessa, and thank you all for coming along. Uh, I forgot to take the script out of my bags. The life-changing magic of decluttering in a post-apocalyptic world. As society collapses around us, and we cling to life among the ruins, it's more important than ever to have an organized and pleasant home in which to cower. (laughs) Tidy surroundings will clear your mind and give you more time to focus on the important things in life, such as scavenging for food, and protecting your home from giant insects. Keep only things that spark joy or will be useful. For example, a childhood toy that conjures happy memories, or an axe that could decapitate a homicidal robot. If an item does not spark joy, thank it and send it on its way. But do so very quietly, so as not to attract the attention of the monstrous things beneath the earth. Don't feel you need to hold on to unwanted gifts. Quietly discarding them is easier than ever, now that the earth is covered with bottomless pits of sulfurous fire. Think how much easier it will be to fight off hordes of murderous reanimated skeletons when you know that you'll be coming home to a drawer full of perfectly folded socks. This one's called Town Mouse. I think I shall pay a visit to Country Mouse. His backward ways never fail to make me feel better about myself. (laughs) Ah, hello, Hipster Mouse. What are you doing here? I'm Airbnb in Country Mouse's place while he's on holiday. Holiday? Yeah. He started a Simple Mouse vlog and lifestyle brand, which made millions. He's gone yachting with Super Rich Mouse. (laughs) Well, well. Country Mouse is certainly moving up in the world. I'll call him. Perhaps I can join them. (laughs) No answer. How odd. I'll try him again later. one's called Marvello the Amazing Grammar Mouse. Hello Marvello, shall we go and point out some amusing grammar mistakes? Oh come on. Shall we go and point out some amusing grammar mistakes? Oh dear, Marvello seems a bit depressed. Still, I'm sure a few misplaced apostrophes and split infinitives will cheer him up. (laughs) What's that, Marvello? 
You think you've wasted your life on a pointless and mean-spirited quest to embarrass those less educated than yourself? Haha, <laughs> isn't Marvello a funny little mouse? This is called um, Some Alternative Voting Systems. Murder Mystery. Candidates are invited to spend a week in an isolated country house. Votes are cast every day, and by night, whoever has the lowest number of votes is murdered in an unusual manner. <laughs> Epic fantasy. Candidates are taken to the realm of darkness where they're imprisoned in ice. Voters must defeat the undead, then use their ballot papers to make a fire and melt the ice of their chosen candidate. <laughs> Magic realism. Candidates are turned into cats who dance in the moonlight to a flute played by a 100-year-old woman. Ballot papers are thrown down a well, and the winner's name appears in an avocado. <laughs> this one's called Failure. I am an abject failure. Better a failed fountain than a successful puddle. I suppose. Failure plays his trumpet at dawn, but success rides his bicycle through the woods at night. <laughs> what? <laughs> Failure is to success as a thimble is to a rhinoceros. Please stop now. <laughs> One's called Previously Unknown Final Chapters of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Chapters 31 to 35. Charlie attends various health and safety courses and management seminars. <laughs> Chapter 36. Charlie fends off an aggressive takeover by Nestle. <laughs> Chapter 37. Charlie renegotiates contracts with the Oompa Loompa unions. Chapters 38 and 39. Charlie diversifies into non-confectionary areas, increasing profits 2,000%. I think this is the last, well, maybe second last. Airbnb reviews for Castle Dracula. <laughs> Old world charm. As the host says, the walls of my castle are broken, the shadows are many, and the wind breathes cold through the broken battlements. But we were enchanted. Thanks, Count. <laughs> Bring earplugs. I was kept awake by the howling of wolves. Host was completely unsympathetic. Just said, the children of the night, what music they make, and crawled out of the window. <laughs> Don't bother. My wife was bitten by something in the night and has become an undead monstrosity with wanton desires and an unquenchable thirst for human blood. Also, terrible Wi-Fi. <laughs> Dog philosopher. I am a good boy. <laughs> I know this because my master says so. But how does she know? Perhaps I only appear to be a good boy. What does it even mean to be a good boy? So many questions. Who's a good boy? I am. I am a good boy. <laughs> Have you 
notice that the farmer has been using the words ham, bacon, and sausages a lot lately? Yeah, what do you think they mean? I'm going to find out. <laughs> Maurice, I've got some very bad news. <laughs> thank you, and thanks for bearing with me in the technical problems. That's exactly what I want to talk about. <laughs> So I have known your work for many years now, um, it's been, uh, and uh, I'm a huge fan of, of your approach to things. And One of the things that, oh yeah, thank you, brother. Um, I mean, just tonight with kind of the glitches that we've experienced here, I think everybody can relate to it. And you explore those kinds of issues a lot with technology mm. yeah. in your work. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your your relationship with t technology and how you approach it and kind of what you, what your message is about technology and how it influences us and the role it plays in our lives. Right, right. Well, I, I think probably my views on technology are a lot like a lot of our views on technology, I, I, I think, or a lot of people I know anyway, which is I love the... the the, the opportunities it gives, and it really helps me. I, I use a computer for all my work, and I share it on the internet, and I have all these people who are seeing my work who 20 years ago would never have got to it. But there's also this awful downside of kind of just too much checking Twitter and too much thinking about uh, how many likes something has got and, and things like that. So it's definitely a double-edged sword. And when it appears in almost all of my books, its technology is never completely brilliant. Mm -hmm. There's always that downside. And I think that's partly because that's where humour comes from. Humour comes from things going wrong, things failing, things not quite working out right. Um, and also from that gap between our um, expectations of technology and the sort of ordinary everydayness of things. You know, that's the thing I always liked when I was a kid. I loved Star Wars, the film. Mm -hmm. And I think the robots in that have really inspired, I draw quite a lot of robots in my cartoons, but they're always a bit like the robots in Star Wars. They go wrong, nobody's impressed by them, they're slightly annoying. They're just this sort of ordinary thing which is there. and it never quite lives up to people's dreams for these things, and I guess there's humour in that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think I find really interesting about the way you kind of look at technology is that you insert technology into like a world that we associate with being hundreds of years ago. You kind of, to, to show the extreme or something, mm. you play with the centuries, kind of, to, to show how absurd a lot of modern aspects of modern living mm. are. Yeah, I mean, especially in the cartoons in this book, they appear in the Guardian newspaper in the arts and books section, which has a bit of a tendency to be quite highbrow, quite literary. And so 
the editor of my section actually tells me what he wants a cartoon about. So I'm given a very general theme from which I can spin off in my own way. And one of the fun things to do, if I'm told I have to do a cartoon about Jane Austen, is to think, how can I look at this in a way which is interesting? And quite often that's looking at it through the lens of technology mm-hmm. and putting together those two things uh, kind of you know, immediately sets off some interesting and hopefully funny thoughts. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a cartoon in, in Baking with Kafka that I think really nails this well. It's uh, I, one guy is telling another guy, they're, they're like knights or soldiers, he's, he's sending them on a quest to get uh, to deliver a sword to someone. Mm. And he's like, okay, but uh, I, I've made a quest, quest all that for you. And they like have a hard time like sinking it and they have to like friend each other and it doesn't quite work. And by the end they're like destroyed by the, the dragon's breath or something because they're trying to like figure it all out. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun to juxtapose those two things. And also I like, you know, there's also fun things to draw. If you're drawing guys going on a quest or robots, it's not just two authors. I mean, some of the cartoons are just two authors talking or whatever, but it's quite fun to find ways of, of making things unexpectedly visually interesting. Um, in, in, in the, because I'm doing it every week and because I've been doing it for 12 years, I'm always trying to find ways to look at things in a new way or, or make the comic feel visually different. Yeah. Um, you did a cover have you done more than one cover for the New Yorker? Did you? I've done two. You've done yeah, two. I did a Thanksgiving one and a kind of autumn books. Like the books one. Um, I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about the process of doing a cover for the mm. New Yorker. I know, like Francois Mouly is the, uh, the New Yorker's cover director. Yeah. Is it was what was the experience like working with them, and how much creative freedom did you have, and how many back and forth revisions? Mm. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well. It's such a wonderful thing that the New Yorker still has this, you know, an illustration on every cover of the year and it's a full, it's a full illustration and they, they are very respectful of, of me anyway and I suspect of all the artists who do it. But what you have to do is pitch them an idea mm-hmm. uh, in, in the roughest form you can get. Did they approach you initially though? Did, did yes, mm-hmm. Francoise got in touch. I think she'd seen my comic somewhere mm-hmm. and had, I think she, she likes to use cartoon people mm-hmm. for that cover. So she got in touch and basically I got into this inner or outer ring where you get to pitch ideas to them. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, you know, that was, in, that, that was like a very exciting moment just getting there. And then you have to send her an idea in its roughest form and if that's good enough, she'll ask for, for more detail. But it's a really, really hard thing to crack a good New Yorker cover because I'm used to working with quite a lot of text and with comic panels and with all the tools of cartooning. And the best New Yorker cartoons, but yeah, covers by cartoonists, still have some of those tools, but you can't have loads of dialogue on the cover. So it's a very subtle and specific type of joke that works, right? And or even joke is like a visual, visual joke or an idea. And I do pitch them from time to time, but it's 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 much tougher I find than making these cartoons. And other cartoonists, I know Dan Klaus has done some of them and has talked mm-hmm. about how difficult it is to make a 
something that works for that yeah. space. And Adrian Tamine as well. Is well he's done lots of them and he's very, he's very good at it. Mm -hmm. um, but once, both times, once I showed the idea, there was almost no um, feedback. Just, oh, just lovely encouragement. Well, that's good. Actually. They liked with, what you did. With the, with the book one, the girl in my cover was reading a book and they said, could she be reading a Kindle instead? Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that. I felt like it made it into a different sort of joke and mm -hmm. it, it did just felt a bit less interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I did it and did, did quite often with illustration I do this. I do it anyway to show them that I'm committed and a nice guy, yeah. but I said I still much prefer the other one. Right. And luckily that and they with it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think it stops you seeming like that artist who's digging his heels in and saying, no, it's my design, I won't change anything. <laughs> so, um, because when I'm not doing cartoons, I do illustration work quite a lot. So I'm, I'm quite used to getting feedback from mm -hmm. illustration clients, but generally with my cartoons, I just get left alone to do my own Well, oh, that's great. So, so just to, to describe that, that cover, for the New Yorker was a, a woman sitting in, I think, her, her giant home library or book collection. Yeah. And she's, she's reading a book. She's reading a book, and in the, behind her, you can see out of a window, there's a kind of last leaf of autumn that's falling off a tree. Mm -hmm. And it, I suppose that's the thing. It wasn't a joke, but it's like a kind of a moment and the idea of somebody who's so engrossed in their books, they've kind of lost touch with um, what's going on outside, but not really in a bad way. Mm -hmm. um, and that one, I think what's visually interesting about it is there's so many books. Mm -hmm. my, my drawings aren't, as you'll have seen, they're, they're about taking very simple drawings, very simple items, and putting them together with the words and the text to hopefully add up to something more. And so with that cover, really, there's a, there's a girl, a leaf, and lots of books, and that's that's it. But yeah. hopefully, the the quantity of books is in, it makes it interesting and, and visually striking. Yeah, one of the the themes that you are constantly going back to is uh, the book or mm. books. Um, what what why do you find why do you find books to be such a worthy subject of exploration in your comics? Well, it's a it's a happy coincidence that I got hired to do a weekly cartoon for a literary part of the newspaper. So they were always going to be about books, mm -hmm. but luckily that is something I really enjoy. I, I love to read, I, and the more I've done it, the more I've just enjoyed making these. I, I wouldn't, if you'd asked me at the beginning, would, do you want to be in 12 years time still doing this job? I think I'd have thought I would run out of steam or, or, or not enjoy mm -hmm. it, but actually, and I haven't. I, I still read. It's still one of my favourite parts of the week is making these cartoons. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess just through books, there's so many other things you can look at. Like you know, the one you're talking about about the um, the quest mm -hmm. that came from uh, 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 there was an article in the Guardian about maps in literature. You know, the kind of J.R.R. Tolkien mm -hmm. drawing his own maps at the mm -hmm. beginning. So kind of thinking of his maps made me think of the. Um, the idea of the quest and then my my sort of trick of thinking what would this be like in the modern world and then it sort of spins out from there and in the end that one's not really a cartoon about books but it's a cartoon that starts from books mm -hmm. so yeah it just seems to I, I don't seem to have got bored yet <laughs> that's great um your your outlook um looking at uh at, at you know your whole 
scope of everything you've done, I, I kind of see like these common ideas of the combination of like melancholy and some wistfulness and mm -hmm. also some kind of absurdism and nihilism. Right. Um, is that kind of your general outlook on life or do you find that that's just good, a good area to mine for, for comics? Well, I think there is, it, it is a good area to mine things going wrong and failure mm -hmm. and things like that are do make for good comedy but I don't I don't like it to get too bleak mm -hmm. so I'm all I and I, I certainly don't want to make um, when I make a cartoon about technology I, I hate the kind of grumpy old man cartoonist right. in our day we all read Dickens and now kids are just playing Candy Crush the whole time mm -hmm. and if I ever have a cartoon that I feel <laughs> is going in that direction I try and kind of swing it back in some other way yeah. because <coughs> I, I think first of all that's untrue and second it's quite boring cliche yeah. so I'm always trying to balance a kind of natural comedic interesting things going wrong with trying to keep some jolliness and hopefulness in there and I think I'm like that as a person I, I think I do have a bit of melancholy in my personality but I'm, I'm generally very happy I have lots of friends and um, uh, and I, I try and get both of those things across in the world. Yeah, I think the, the cartoons, baking with Kafka cartoons, it's funny, they're like almost like, because I do each of them every week in a kind of real hurry, because they tell me on a Tuesday what the theme for the cartoon is, and I have to finish it by end of the day Wednesday. So it's basically one, one day or a day and a half of intense just thinking about the cartoon, not thinking about how it fits into a, a series mm -hmm. of them. So when a book like this comes out, it's almost like a sort of funny diary of <laughs> three years. And I think Bacon with Kafka has more pure silliness in it at times than any of my other uh, comics. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I can see that. <coughs> um, you did a book a few years ago called Goliath. Have, are any of you yeah. familiar with that? And so that's really, I think, for me, the first time I've seen you kind of explore a kind of longer form uh, graphic novel. It's, it's the story of David and Goliath told from Goliath's point of view. And Goliath is a very sympathetic character, as opposed to being like this horrible monster. You like see that he is like, <laughs> he's not a bad guy. Um, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. Um, do, do you... In, did you enjoy the process of doing something that was like a longer, longer work, and, and are you going to return to that format? Uh, I I enjoyed having done a graphic novel. <laughs> I didn't in, I, that time. I didn't enjoy the process. I or I enjoyed small snatches of it. It was really hard. <laughs> it was really hard. Um, I suppose I. The, you know, I'd made lots of short comics and I'd self-published lots of things and it felt like right now I should do a graphic novel. Mm -hmm. And John and Quarterly very kindly, I wrote to them and said I'd like to do a graphic novel and they said, great, we'll publish it. Mm -hmm. So that was very simple. And then I was like, oh God, now I've got to write it. <laughs> and it was really hard. I just, I, I, I found trying to find what I wanted to say quite difficult. And then... You know, I think half the battle is convincing yourself that the work is not 
it, it, the work is worth continuing with. Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of daily battle on, for me, on longer projects. And the, the battle is not to put it away in a drawer and then it sort of stays there for months and months. <laughs> so Goliath was hard to do, but in the end I was very pleased with it and very pleased that people seemed to like it. And I've since then done another longish book. They're still not long, long graphic novels called Mooncock. Oh, that's right. Which was less, yeah. which was less painful than mm -hmm. Goliath. Mm -hmm. But it was still harder than these, this book which almost happens by accident in the background of my life. Every three years, suddenly, there's enough cartoons for a book. So these ones come out very easily, whereas Mooncock was probably a bit tricky, but I'm hoping the next one is just going to be a joy yeah. from start to finish. Well, I encourage you to continue, even though it is really hard, because I think it's, it's worth the effort. These are amazing pieces of work, and mm. I, I encourage all of you to, to check out Mooncock and Goliath, as well as the gigantic robot, which was one of your first kind of longer books, right? Yeah, although it was it was still pretty. That was a sort of very a, a bit. It was a bigger book, mm -hmm. but it was still quite short. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, it was moving on from telling jokes to trying to tell a story, mm -hmm. a, a longer story, which is a challenge, and I, I'm totally fascinated by that challenge, and we'll we'll probably always keep making graphic novels, but mm -hmm. it's. It's just a bit harder. Yeah. Um, let me see if I have another question before we open it up to... I think I covered most of the questions I have. Um, why don't we take some questions from you all and uh, Tom can answer them for you. Um, I'm a comedy guy, so I'm always curious uh, asking artists what made you laugh as a kid. What made me laugh as a kid? Uh, the, well, as a as a young, as a teenager, I that's when I really got into comedy. Uh, it was a kind of the, in the in the 90s in Britain there was a lot of good comedy on television, so I was. I loved a British TV program, which I don't know if it ever really travelled across here. Vic Reeves, Big Night Out, <coughs> which was a very silly and surreal TV program. It, you almost can't imagine how it got um, commissioned. What, but that presumably what year was this? This would have been sort of ninety-five. Okay. And it was it was it was based around a kind of weird variety show, but it was just totally surreal. It's worth you can find it on YouTube, and I think that really set my mind going on on what was funny. And also around that time, there's a man named Armando Iannucci who he he came up with a TV program Veep over here. But he did loads of stuff in the 90s in Britain, including his own TV show called The Armando Iannucci Shows. And they were just a wonderful mixture of silliness and deadpan. And just I, I, something I try and go for in my work is, is kind of sometimes taking a rather silly joke, but telling it with a straight face or a semi-straight face um, and hoping that somehow that makes it more interesting or more funny. Are there cartoonists that, that you enjoyed when you were younger that had that same kind of mood that you approach today? Um, I mean, the, 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 I suppose the people who influence the cartoons in Baking with Kafka 
there's a, an American cartoonist called Michael Kupperman mm -hmm. who makes very silly jokes, which I've always found absolutely hilarious. And um, he wrote a book about Mark Twain and Einstein, or maybe mainly Mark Twain, but Einstein does appear in it. And I, I remember reading it and laughing so hard in bed that tears were rolling down <laughs> my face. And my wife was like, what are you reading? <laughs> and whenever I explained what it was, she just, it didn't really work. You had to read the book. <laughs> and so he's always been an influence. Who, when I'm talking about graphic novels, I always forget to mention him. But with these cartoons, he's definitely been an influence. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, um, Obviously, um, I mean, I, I see Edward Gorey in here. Mm. So you might as well talk a little bit about Edward Gorey and, and what his influence was on you. Yeah, no, he was a big, big influence. When I was um, when I was at college, I went to college to study illustration. I'd always drawn as a kid, but and I drew cartoons to kind of amuse my friends, but I never considered myself a writer or trying to be a writer or I think I always imagined I'd find someone who could write and I'd draw pictures mm -hmm. to go with their writing but when I saw Edward Gorey's work it was just it was like a light bulb going off in my head I thought do you remember what it was the first one it was made? one of the Amphigori collections mm -hmm. that was in the college library in Edinburgh and just the fact that he makes these these weird books which aren't quite comics and are and, and he doesn't feel enslaved by having to use any of the rules or the, the tools of comics. Mm -hmm. He just takes what he wants and makes these books. And I just love that he they felt totally his and that also his design sense really influenced me. I really love the idea that with one of his books, uh, I go for this with my with my books as well, that the kind of journey of the story begins when you see the book on the shelf it doesn't begin when you start reading it you kind of you know you've already picked up this weird object and and entered into its world and i i love that about him and you know his drawing style i, I loved that they were funny but they weren't drawn with big noses and big feet they were quite uh deadpan so yeah no he he was it was his work that made me really think oh i can i can do this all if i, if I try hard uh -huh. that's great a great role model to have did you always know you wanted to be um, an artist when you were young? I always knew I wanted to draw for a living. And I, oh, I always knew I wanted to draw. And I think there was a point when I realized, maybe in my pre-teen years, that I remember the thinking, oh, if, if you're a doctor, you don't draw. You know, like, I can't, if I, if I, because I think I thought I'll be a doctor or something like that. And it was like, oh, adults don't draw. And if I'm going to keep drawing, I mean, I was wrong in a way, because you can. But I, that's what I, at the time, realized if I want to draw all the time and do what I love, then it's going to have to be a career. And I thought I want to be an artist of some sort, and I didn't really know. And then I realized that actually I wasn't interested in being a sculptor or even a painter. I just wanted to draw all day. And that's illustration and cartooning, so that's kind of why I ended up in that world. And I thought I'd be an illustrator and I'd just be happy illustrating other people's things, which I, I do enjoy, and is, is much easier than writing the whole comic. <laughs> and can sometimes be really fascinating because you can be inspired by someone else's work. and um, But... I slowly realized that I did want to tell my own stories as well. 
and then I almost had to learn how to write and, and learn how to use words and that's been one of the things that this weekly cartoon for the Guardian has been good for is it's like a weekly place <coughs> to practice and try things out and because it's not one ongoing story I can I can try something which I don't have to do it again next week I can just do these experiments so that's been good. Um, I'm interested in your process. This was news to me that uh, most of your comics come from an assignment. Mm. Uh, so uh, I assume sometimes you're you're just coming up with a strip on your own, not from an assignment. And yeah, the, the first the first one I read, the apocalyptic thing, was for the New Yorker, but they just said send us a cartoon about whatever you want. So that one was completely. So what's your process when when uh, the Guardian says do something about this? Uh, is, it, is it a very different approach from the New Yorker strip? Or? Not really. I think the lovely thing about being given a theme is it saves a lot of work because you don't have to do a cartoon about anything in the world, right. which is a difficult place to start. It's like there's this, there's this point to begin from. And they'll, it might be something as vague as, you know, uh, they've, had, they've had a piece about Jane Austen, so I have to do a cartoon in some way related to Jane Austen, but they're very understanding about me spiraling off on my own way. So I just, what I do is I always take my sketchbook and I leave my studio and I go for a walk to a cafe and then I sit and draw in the sketchbook um, and, and just write down all the ideas, lists, doodles, and just fill the page with thoughts. And the reason I don't stay at my desk is I feel there's, there's a kind of impulse to finish things if I'm at my desk, to, to get the idea, get it drawn and get it emailed away. Whereas if I'm out and about, it's kind of more, there's more time to think through things and think around the subject. So I'll spend the afternoon drinking coffee and doodling, and then hopefully by the time I walk back to the studio, then something is beginning to come together. And then I work just on, on pieces of photocopy paper, um, doodling away and trying to really take the idea from the sketchbook and figure out how it will fit into the, the shape that I'm, you know, you know, the Guardian cartoon shape or whatever other shape. And, and then I just work editing and doodling on scraps of paper until I have something that works. And then I'll trace on a light box with a, a uni ball pen, ball pen. Um, to get a neat version, and then I colour it on the computer. So it's all very simple because I'm not looking to make kind of virtuoso, you know, um, works of art. They're they're cartoons. They're to be read, and for me, it's about simplicity and um, readability. Do you feel that if you were to actually do your doodling and final drawing on the computer itself, it would somehow limit you or stifle you creativity? creatively? Um, I think it would because, because of my method at the moment the computer is used for fin in my head the computer is used for finishing mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. and I like that idea of not rushing to finish things mm -hmm. um, I so, so and there is some I, I, I do feel that when you're drawing on paper in front of you the work is somehow in our world and once it's mm -hmm. gone through the screen into the computer. I feel like it's starting to get away from me. Mm. I mean, the computer's wonderful for coloring and neatening things up, and I have a font of my lettering so I can edit things and, and uh, change things in, in, you know, for various reasons. But I still like the idea of 
having a finished drawing which then goes into that into that world. Interesting. So you actually you don't hand letter the cartoons, you use a font that you no, scan. Well, in? No, I, I, I do I always hand letter the finished cartoons, but um, sometimes what I do is I scan in a pencil drawing mm -hmm. and then if there's a lot of text I lay out the text using the um, using the font and then I print it out and, and do it over a whiteboard. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I, I like the idea that the, the lettering and the drawing all comes from the same hand and it's drawn mm -hmm. with the same pen and it has the same feeling. Yeah. Um, so even though it's a bit of a hassle printing out the font and tracing it off again, I kind of feel it's worth it to have everything be of a piece. I agree. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, yeah, back there. Yeah. Do you feel pressure as part of your process to you to stay away from looking at other uh, cartoons in the week so as to not, you know, potentially have the same idea or be influenced by, by anything else? Uh, no, not really. I, I am, I, I, I'm quite, I, I don't, I, I don't show the cartoons as I'm working on them to anyone. The Guardian are wonderful, they just, I send them a cartoon and they print it. They once made me take out the word wanker, which I put in the cartoon, <laughs> but one edit in 12 years I think is pretty good. Wow. Um, so, I, 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 I really just kind of treat it as a, I'll just do it and we'll print it and if it doesn't work for some reason, then next week I'll, I'll do something different. Um, and people on the internet, a little bit what that Marvello mouse was about. The, the things people love doing on the internet is correcting your grammar. Uh, and even that Marvello mouse some cartoon, some people got in touch afterwards, not seeing the irony of pointing out there was a missing comma in it. Um, and they also love telling you about somebody else who has done a cartoon on this theme, uh -huh. which I think sometimes is done with a kind of, not with any malice, but a kind of joy or a kind of enthusiasm. But there is something a little bit depressing <laughs> yeah, when you've yeah. your cartoon and say, oh, you should have a look at Ross Jast. You uh -huh. think, oh, she's done a much better version <laughs> of this. But that's, you know, that's, that's life. You just, and I think if you start thinking about things like that, you, you, you lose something which, um, isn't worth losing. So I, I'd rather take that risk. Yeah. So should we wrap this up so that Tom can sign? Sure. Okay. Does anyone have a last question? Yeah. One, one more question? Hi. I was just wondering, because I'm a huge fan of graphic novels, if you have some that are like your favorites that you go back to. You mentioned Roz Chast and I love her. Yes. Well, I loved, I, I loved her New Yorker cartoons. She's probably my favorite New Yorker cartoonist. But then she did this um, memoir called Can We Talk About Something More Pleasant about her parents getting older and getting sick. And it's just amazing because she, she's gone from making these perfect little um, gag cartoons, which still have a weirdness and a darkness and a sadness in them, to making this really beautiful graphic novel which has everything that her cartoons have but kind of twisted in a new way. So I was I loved that when I read it. Um, and I know I think a lot of people my age were influenced by Chris Ware's work when it came out. I think it was just at the time it just seemed so um, unexpected and it, it, seeing his stuff really influenced me early on. And I know a lot of cartoonists who are around my age feel that so it's a bit of a cliche to say it but he is he was he is just brilliant and he was 
then even it was even more stark his brilliance yeah. because it was um, because it was it was unexpected and new yeah. and uh, you know obviously Dan Klaus had been doing amazing stuff for years and there were other people doing great stuff but his stuff was really surprising at the mm -hmm. time so I I I wouldn't. It's not so much I go back and read. The nice thing about comics is you can you don't need to go back and read it from start to finish. You can just pick it up off your shelf and look through a few pages. And um, so his work. I don't know who else. Who else? Um, Sorry, Lewis Carnahan. Uh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Lewis. How about Charles Burns? Yeah. I, I mean, both Lewis Trondheim and Charles Burns, I, I respect their artistry and I'm and, and impressed by their work. But I, I don't know if either of them would be my, you know, my real go-back-to things. Um, I, there's a British um, cartoonist called William Heath Robinson, who um, is a, just a wonderful illustrator and cartoonist, and he used to invent crazy machines. Who's the American artist? Rube Goldberg. Rube yeah. Goldberg. When, when you guys talk about something being Rube Goldberg-esque mm -hmm. mm -hmm. in Britain, people talk about Heath Robinson. Oh, interesting. Were they contemporaries? I think Heath Robinson was before. He was oh. kind of turn of the century, oh, okay. First World War, mm -hmm. Second World War things. And he just comes up with these crazy inventions. But also his cartooning is so perfect that you can always read exactly how they work. And his line is just beautiful and he, he was an illustrator and he worked very hard and did loads of different things and he's always he's like a real pro mm -hmm. you know you never see a bad thing by him mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm I was I, I always love his work and, and go back to it that's interesting well before we end just one other thing that that you mentioned was how, how you kind of said you like to work with kind of a limited set of visual elements mm. and, and letter um, uh, are you a fan of Ernie Bushmiller's work with, with Nancy? Yeah, I am now. Mm -hmm. I, I, he, Nancy was not, uh, never made it to Britain right. in, in, in any way that I noticed. Mm -hmm. So it was only more recently that I've understood how good it is. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a really interesting, I, I, I read a, an interesting review of an essay, a, a big essay book about yeah. how to read Nancy. Garden. Yeah. yeah, which I want to, I haven't seen That's yet. That's great. Right. Yeah. Right. It's good. And yeah, yeah, because I almost think, you know, some of the, almost at the beginning of a cartoon or the beginning of a graphic novel, I sort of make a, almost like a font out of the, the parts mm -hmm. I'm going to use to tell mm -hmm. the story with. And then telling the story is almost repeating those in different combinations and different ways to, to make this story happen. Mm -hmm. um, and you try and make it more visually interesting than a, than, than a font on a page. But it, it has some, I like the idea that if something appears twice, you, you don't, you know, I remember reading uh, How to Draw Superhero Comics, and they said, oh, yeah. there's a conversation happening, try having the camera, the, or the, or the, the point of view, zoom round, uh -huh. and I just thought, well, why? <laughs> so why not just have, you know, if something is the same, have it again, yeah. having, if just then suddenly the tiny little changes maybe mean something. Right. Yeah, you're probably thinking of how to drop comics the Marvel way. Something like that, probably. <clears throat> yeah. Well, Tom, this has been thoroughly enjoyable to be able to talk to you finally about your work, and it makes me appreciate it even more. Thanks, thank, Mark. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.